Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. Um, we've still got a, one or two people going, who are going to come in a little bit late, so don't be alarmed if the door opens as we are going, because we're going to uh, carry on uh, as the, Europe, the young Gasteiners join us a few minutes later. Let me welcome you to this session, Data Shouldn't Be Rocket Science, Peter. My name is Petra Wilson, I'm from Health Connect Partners, and I'm joined here by an amazing panel. And if we could just have the slide of our panelists so you see who they are. But they are going to introduce themselves uh, as they answer questions. So you can see who we have with us, three in person and one virtual. Birgit Bigger is with us virtually, um, and we will see her on the screen when she answers questions. We also know we have a very large number of people with us virtually. Um, the people who are with us virtually can interact with us via Slido, and I'm sure we'll see the Slido link in a moment. So here you have the Slido link. This is the link for anybody who is with us virtually, and of course you in the room as well. Uh, you in the room will be welcome to ask questions by raising your hand, but in order to keep things as fair as possible, we will also I'll be taking points from Slido, and you're very welcome to make your comments there as well. This session has been kindly sponsored by Novartis, and we're very grateful to Novartis for supporting this and for their continued engagement in the realm of making data work for us patients, for us researchers, for healthcare professionals, making data work for healthcare. And that's really what we're looking on today. And we're going to, uh, I'm going to start in a moment by introducing um, a new concept for today to you. But what I want to say is that this session is the second session in two ways. It's the second session in the stream on transformative approaches. Uh, Mike Morrissey just chaired a session uh, looking at the role of transformation in the cancer realm and particularly the importance of data, or from my perspective, particularly the importance of data. There were many other things in there, but the importance of data in um, in uh, taking cancer care to the next level. And that's really what we want to look at here today. But it's also a second session in that it builds on what we did last year in a session that was entitled, Hey Mary, and thanks for your data. In that session, what we identified with the panelists and also with the polls is that while many citizens and patients feel very confident about the importance of data use and that they are happy that their data is used to treat them well, there is still some reluctance and some fear about what happens with data. And one of the reasons for that is the concept of the ownership of data. And, and you will have seen that also in the abstract of the session today. There is still this notion that we own data. And of course, in some ways we do. But what I want to give to you very briefly is two different concepts of ownership of data. There is an emotional ownership of data. We talk about my job, my children. We talk about my books. But what do those terms really mean to us? We don't own our children. We don't sell our children. And actually, many of us don't own books anymore. We own the right to read books because we have them on a, on a platform. But more and more, we don't own paper books that we can sell to somebody else. And then there is the legal concept of ownership. For those of us who own houses or flats or cars, we have a title in those things that we can pass to another person. And when we've passed it to that other person, 
It has nothing to do with us anymore. And I hope that alerts you to why it's dangerous to talk about ownership in data, uh, sorry, ownership in health data, because we don't want to pass all the rights and interests and control of data about ourselves to another person and then have no more control over it. What we want is good governance, good control, good stewardship of data. That's what we highlighted in last year's session, and it's a little bit what we want to look at today as we think about data being the fuel for the rockets that we want to use to get to the moon. And what I want to present to you now, and if we could move to the slides, please, is three concepts of different types of healthcare journeys that we are on. Now, these are not healthcare journeys that are necessarily cumulative, but they are different types of healthcare journeys that we are on and that are fueled differently and by different uses of data. I would put it to you that we are already, in terms of health data travel, traveling light. We already have, particularly through the mechanism of the European reference networks for rare diseases, we have the mechanism to use data to allow a patient to travel virtually. The European reference networks for rare diseases, as you know, don't actually accommodate a patient traveling from A to B, but what they do do is allow their information, their data to travel so that the specialists can get together in virtual multidisciplinary teams to help those patients to share information and to allow the patient to move on to the next stage of their journey without having actually physically traveled. And that's what we can call traveling light. What we'd really like to do is move that further and move it out of the realm of purely rare diseases and specialists' interaction into how we can help people in their everyday healthcare. And that's how we are taking traveling light into the future. We're on the cusp of traveling smart, of cross-border care facilitated through health data. The cross-border care directive was the start to this and it introduced the ideas of the uh, summary care record, the electronic prescription, and we're now moving on into recognizing the importance of cross-border transfer of images, of discharge letters, and so forth. We're on the cusp of traveling smart, but we haven't quite got to traveling smart yet because our traveling smart notions are limited to things like summary care records and not full records, not full data that a patient can take with them wherever they go in order to get better care. Where I think we're still in the moonshot and still reaching for real future travel is tailored future travel, where we really integrate telemedicine with face-to-face -face care, where we use data properly in an integrated way across every aspect of care and where we allow patient data to really personalize the care a patient receives, where we really use data to drive preventative care, where we use data to empower patients and more, most importantly and within the context of this conference and what Gastein has been about for 25 years, where data is the fuel for resilient and targeted care in the future. So if we move to the next slide, please. Data shouldn't be rocket science, but it should be and can be the fuel 
for the rockets that are going to get us to those next stages. And that requires a number of things that are on, listed on this slide. I'm not going to go through them in detail, but they are, in effect, the things that we find within the new initiative the European health data space. It's about interoperability. It's about findable and accessible data. It's about portability of data. It's about expanding health data to include ambient data, to, to include... By, by which I mean things like pollution data or travel data, by including wellness data, by really allowing patients to bring their own data into the healthcare environment. It's also about regional integration, and we'll hear more about that as we go forward, because healthcare is essentially something we need to be able to use near to ourselves, near to our homes and our families and our support infrastructures. So that's what we're going to look at now. We're going to look at the journeys of healthcare, three different concepts of journeys, and data as the fuel for the rocket that we hope is going to get us to future tailored travel in some point soon. In order to see where you, the audience here and online are, we'd like to invite you to go to the Slido and if we could put that up again with the link to the slider, which is hashtag moon for, for this one. And there you will see a question that asks you to rate from one to five where, how far you think we've got in terms of actually having tailored travel into the future. Uh, are, we, are we nearly there yet uh, for any of those those of you who still have young children, or even for those of us who have older children, are we nearly there yet, is an answer question we've all had to answer in the past. So let me um, put that slide up. We can see where we are. Um, and I'm going to use this question to go to our panel to ask them to react to what they've seen. Thank you very much for listening to this idea about three different types of travel. And uh, for our panellists, you can see the results. Well over half think that we haven't really got there. We're still only daydreaming. Some think we're actively planning our routes. Numbers are going down as we speak. We're going to close it in a moment. And um, we, nobody thinks we're there yet. So we're still on the way to travelling. So... I've just realized I've left my questions up there. Um, I am, however, going to ask Mike, you to respond first, to ask you, what's your reaction to that? People still think we're daydreaming. Is that a fair assessment? And would you like to also introduce yourself as you answer that question? Sure. Thanks, Petra. Um, well, I would say that we are thinking about getting measured up for our spacesuits. We are thinking about it. We are planning for it, we're discussing it, um, and I represent the European Cancer Organisation and we are a group of, we're a federation really of oncologists, nurses, pharmacists, patient groups, and we have a digital health network that has been addressing this question, and we had a roundtable on the European Health Data Space back in June and a report since then, and I think there's a lot of learning going on within the community, a lot of um, realisation of the opportunity that exists um, with the health data space. I was reading a stat that um, rare disease patients, this came from one of our patient groups, Eurodis, rare patient 
uh, rare cancer patients, 95% of them would be happy for their data to be used and shared, compared to 37% of, of other patients. Well, that's, an, that, that's no surprise, I suppose. People with rare cancers think, I don't care about my data so long as it's anonymized. I want to share it. I want to, I want to learn. I want to get the benefit of, of, of that data being shared across borders, across, uh, across hospitals and so on. So I think there's a lot less caution in the patient community than there is in the regulator uh, policymaker community on, on the health data space issue. But I think there's also a, a sense that healthcare professionals are learning very much too what the, the future could hold. And a natural caution, I think, Petra, um, like many big initiatives that are uh, international initiatives, I'm not talking specifically about EU initiatives, that the devil's in the detail, that somehow when policymakers get hold of it and it gets into implementation zone, that it might all get too complicated and everybody forgets all about it. So I think there's a lot of aspiration, a lot of ambition, but um, I think there's a, a long way to go and a lot of, a lot of stakeholders will need to work very closely together and start trusting each other to make it happen. So trust, which is interesting because it's the thing that came up most strongly last year and the thing that we he hear most common. People want trust that their data is going to be used properly, that it's going to be used in a way that personalizes their care, do you think? Yeah, no, I, I do. And I think if you ask people the simple question, would you like your oncologist to have access to data across Europe for people with the same kind of cancer as you in your age group of your gender and see what treatments work? It's a no brainer. Yes, of course. Of course I would. And of course, I want my data shared if that's going to help the common good. I think I think if you talk in too technical language, then it gets a little bit more, a little bit more complicated. But I, but I, I do think that this is about bringing, and that's what's great about events like Gastein, bringing policymakers together with all of the healthcare professionals, patient groups, and other stakeholders involved in this. Because if this is going to work, it's going to require a significant joint effort. Thank you very much. Um, and as I said, we are, have been joined by the group from the Younger Steiners. Um, we are very grateful to have you with us. We're looking forward to your input. Uh, we're talking about the importance of data in uh, driving, fueling our, our moonshot and driving new forms of healthcare. Um, and people often say that the younger generation have a different attitude to data, so we'll be interested to hear if that comes out. But Tessa, let me, let me ask you, I know that you feel quite strongly about patients and patients' access to data, patients' rights to, to share data or withhold data if they want to. What, what was your reaction to the fact that most people think we're still daydreaming, that we really haven't got to a point yet of using data to drive care in the way that we as patients might want it? I think um, people press the right button. I think we're still a long way away. Um, by way of quick introduction, um, I am um, worked in, as a 
rheumatologist in general medicine and general practice before I joined the British Medical Journal, where I've been on the editorial staff for a very long time, the last um, eight years of which has been spent um, leading and developing the BMJ's patient partnership strategy. Concurrently, in 2004, I um, presented with a stage three very rare um, cancer, adrenal cortical carcinoma, and um, somehow have managed a journey with that since. It's extraordinary that I'm still alive, but anyway, I'm the lucky, lucky one. Most people are not with this cancer. Also, um, I'm a carer for family members with dementia, blindness, rheumatoid arthritis, and I think this journey has made me passionate indeed about the importance of patients having full access to their own health records. Um, you cannot expect people to take control and self-manage their conditions, especially long-term chronic conditions, which are the most common things that um, health, in Europe is, uh, health providers in Europe are having to deal with if they don't have access to their own information. I always sort of draw the parallel. How on earth would you manage your financial affairs if you weren't allowed to see your bank statement? Um, I think in terms of where we are along the road, um, there, is, there are some encouraging signs. For example, in Sweden, um, now well over 90% of people have f full access to their electronic health records. And the, they started that in about 2012. Um, they're probably the furthest ahead within Europe in that respect. In the UK, it's very patchy. We've gone for sort of... Um, NHS Digital had a sort of catastrophic attempt at it, which cost 20 billion and didn't um, succeed some time back. And since then, one of the most enterprising people who pushed the envelope on giving patients access to their full electronic health records is an outfit which is independent, not-for-profit, called Patients Knows Best. And through them, about 10 million people have got full access and can use it. Um, NHS Digital has pushed out a bit. We can get access to some information. I personally can get access to summary information and various other bits and pieces. I can't get access to doctor's letters. A lot of the coding is incorrect. Um, it's very frustrating. It's not going to be useful for me to, to even go within my own country, let alone cross borders. I mean, contrast this with um, Australia, where 90% of the population have got access to the electronic health records through their national system, and the U.S., where it's now mandated as of, um, I think it was April 2021, that all health providers provide all patients with full access to their full records without charge, without delay. So it's coming, but it's patchy. It's coming, but it's patchy. So, Mike, you think it's important, but we're not there yet. Tessa, it's coming, but it's patchy, and we're not yet there yet. Michaela, you're, you're more from representing regional aspects now. What about within countries? Have, have we reached little moons within countries yet? Or are we there also still only daydreaming? Well, 
Thank, thanks, Peter, first of all. Um, great to be here. I'm Michele. I work for Eurigas, the European uh, Network for Regional and Local Health Authorities, indeed. Um, it's, it's, it's actually quite interesting because we started a journey together with, with our members to discuss you know, how the European data space will, uh, will impact the work that they do already at local and regional level. And um, um, I think it's correct to say that we're still daydreaming in a way. Um, but I also want to think that we started a journey towards like kind of fixing this daydreaming and putting it forward. Um, why am I saying that we're still daydreaming? Because it is clear that uh, we're, we're talking about the European health data space and we have some really good bases as, as you explained in the slide, the European reference network, uh, so models that can be scaled up. Uh, but we're talking about the European health data space when in our own nations and regions we still have troubles to communicate about data and health data within their own countries. So uh, I think there are very nice, interesting best practices, lots of pockets of use of data and interesting advancement. But um, I think it's, the road is very, very long. But we started it, which is, uh, which is really interesting. And I can say that, uh, of course, from, uh, um, from our regional and local health authorities, there is willingness and understanding of how important this is, uh, especially also considering the cross-border dimension. It's a huge amount of uh, the European population that lives in cross-border areas. Mm. So it's not just every now and then, but it's people that really, uh, maybe they are closer to an hospital in another country than the one they, they're currently living. So, it's not just about uh, fixing it for one, two cases, but it's really creating a system that it's working 365 days a year. And with this in mind, yes, I think we're still, we're still daydreaming, um, but we can learn from what we're doing already. Again, uh, um, talking with, uh, with our members, looking at how many projects, initiatives have been running on these, how many new initiatives are coming up every day. Um, there's a lot of wealth of information on how to, to make it happen. I think we just need to take the next step and connect everything. And that's going to be probably the hardest bit. Thank, thank you very much for that. I noticed that there's been one question on the slider, and we will come to it, because the question on the slider also for my panelists, colleagues who haven't seen it, is can we address the, question, the elephant in the room and discuss GDPR and the fact that it limits data transfer? We'll come to that. I'm going to ask Birgit to give her comments on this idea of the journey and how far we've got. We will come to that question, but I do want to... Um, for, for people who don't know me in this audience, saying GDPR to me personally is a little bit of a red flag, and I can talk about this for weeks on end, so you really don't want to ask that question of me personally. Fortunately for you, I'm the moderator, so I can't answer. But Birgit, please. Good morning, everybody. Uh, great to be here with you, even uh, on the virtual space. Uh, but uh, this, yeah, we are talking about data and uh, digital tools, so uh, it's great to use it. Um, my name is Birgit Beger. I'm the CEO of the European Heart Network. It's a federation comprising um, national uh, foundations uh, 
funding research and uh, patient organizations uh, re representing uh, patients um, in the cardiovascular health community. So uh, from my point of view, um, this is a very decisive um, uh, topic, always for SPIN. Uh, Petra knows this. Um, I remember having worked um, together also with um, uh, Dr. Michael Wilkes had said data at that time, it doesn't even work in my hospital <laughs> to have data transferred. So looking at the pic uh, bigger picture of the healthcare system, I think it's an obligation, utterly, utterly important, that we need to transform uh, our current healthcare system face-to-face, -face, uh, uh, also into the virtual work, so that it functions to the benefit of the society at large. And without, um, and I'm talking this uh, especially coming from the Cardinalska uh, Health community, which has suffered a lot uh, under uh, the pandemic, uh, when numbers have gone up because people missed appointments in the hospital. And some of the digital tools actually helped to um, get, get a, a certain consultation, get a certain rehabilitation, uh, having a certain monitoring. So it is really decisive to bring this on uh, in, in favor of everybody. Looking where we are at the journey, I think um, <laughs> I said initially we are uh, under two and three. So we are actively planning. We want to go there. I think there's the need. We can't circumvent it. We have to do it. Uh, we have some elements packed, uh, but we are not ready to go because uh, um, our, our suitcase, our rucksack is not uh, finished. So uh, I think that's uh, where we're here. I, th I think the European health data space is a promising um, undertaking. Uh, it's, it is uh, one of the, um, let's say, next to the cross-border health uh, care directive with the electronic health record uh, and the e-prescription and the European reference network. It's another building stone, but we have to see that it all fits into the suitcase and that the, that the elements uh, are, are actually helping us to, to do the journey, that they work together. So the European health data space has some other legal, <laughs> legal <laughs> instruments you've just mentioned, GDPR, uh, but there's also, of course, the um, medical device regulation, the, um, the, the let's say the directive concerning security of networks, information system, data governance act, uh, artificial intelligence, another very important topic. And I have to see that these instruments uh, work together like a fine machine rather than blocking each other, which we have at the moment, unfortunately, the case. Uh, regarding patience and trust, yeah, I think uh, there's a big uh, ethical debate uh, on the one hand side to enable the primary use for in, in favor of the patients having access to uh, cross-border, um, uh, the health records, the, date, uh, the data, the images, and maybe also procedures in the long run. Uh, that is the one point, but we also have the strong need for secondary use of data to have uh, research, enable innovation and, and, and progress overall. So there's, there, there's a, an ethical debate, and I think it's our job as, as, a, as a society to create a framework where there's trust, where are the fair principles, which I mentioned on your second slide, Pedro, uh, so that people can trust into the system and that there is a benefit for all uh, stakeholders involved, be it researchers, be it healthcare professionals, but of course, um, uh, uh, primarily, of course, for the patient, because that that uh, that is um, it's at, he should be or she should be at the center of it. I think I stop here and we go to the next question, isn't it, Petra? Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. So I, I hope that you've seen from this that our panellists um, by and large agree with you. Um, we, we're not there yet. 
definitely not there yet. We're probably packing. Um, some of us are daydreaming, some of us are packing. Interesting in Birgit's answer, she, she vacillated between packing a rucksack and packing a suitcase. And I think that actually introduces a very interesting new image. Are we packing a rucksack for a quick bit of smart travel? So more along the lines of the European re reference networks, more along the lines of a quick fix to an urgent situation, or are we really packing a big suitcase for a year's worth of travel somewhere? Let's um, acknowledge the, the question, which has now got four, um, four thumbs up. And, and we haven't prepared this, so I will have to ask you to, to wing it if you'd like to. GDPR. Um, in my introduction, I did mention GDPR. I did say that the GDPR doesn't include the concept of data ownership, that it's about data governance. GDPR has within it the right of data portability, but how portable is data actually? I think the, the question suggests that whilst the concept of data portability might be in the GDPR, it doesn't really work. Is that one of the things that's limiting our journey to the moon? Mike? I mean, I, I think yes. I, th I think it's a very good question. And I think like a lot of initiatives that happen um, at a, on a European-wide or a global basis um, in healthcare, you know, that it's full of unintended consequences, right? And the, 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 the concept behind GDPR may be admirable and all of that, but in practice, it's just, it paralyzes um, uh, data sharing and in a way that the individual that is trying, that the legislation is designed to protect is, is suffers from. So, I think that GDPR is, a, is an obstacle. It's one of the three big barriers that needs to be addressed by a number of stakeholders to, to uh, resolve. I, I think that there's two ways of looking at this from my perspective. You could say, you know, it's, it's really complicated getting a health system to talk to itself, as Michaela was indicating. I mean, I remember when I moved to France, how impressed I was getting a carte vitale, which has a chip in it, which has all of my uh, records and I can give to any doctor or any pharmacist wherever I go. I was super impressed having moved from the UK to uh, just in time, by the way, to uh, France. Um, I was super impressed with, with that. And you could say, well, it's, it's so complicated getting healthcare systems to talk to each other with data. It's impossible to, to think about going wider than that. But I think that would be lacking in ambition. And I think we need that ambition there. We at the European Cancer Organization have been asked by the Commission, uh, the, European cancer, uh, the European Commission to coordinate a project for a cancer survivor smart card, like mm -hmm. an app. Now, I can tell you being a little bit involved in leading that project, coordinating it with other, other organizations, it's super complicated, <laughs> super complicated. The idea that a cancer survivor would have an app that can talk to different systems that is relevant in all 27 countries, that is super complicated. Does that mean we should give up? I would argue not. I would argue that by insisting that systems talk to each other, that we standardize the data that we're keeping on, uh, on individual citizens in different countries, by solving or trying to solve the GDPR issue, 
we've got a chance of levelling our sights and a chance of improving individual healthcare systems in nations and regions as well as the transfer across mm -hmm. borders. If we don't go there, if we say it's all too complicated, um, why bother? I think the inequalities issues that we've been talking about in other sessions here at Gastein will just continue to exist. Thank you very much. Um, Michaela, you've thought a lot about EHDS, GDPR, you mentioned them both. Do you, th and we, I think we all recognise in, in the room, those of us who, who've read the European Health Data Space legislation in detail, the object of the exercise was overcoming some of the barriers that the GDPR had created. But it isn't just about cross-border data. What about within regions? How near are we to solving the problems of data portability within regions? Well, I think... Um, yes, the question is uh, it's, it's pretty relevant indeed. The elephant in the room is, is the GDPR as a starting point. But as, as Mike was saying, I think the, the, the EHGS has the ambition, although it's going to maybe take forever, but it has the ambition of trying to solve these things. Otherwise, uh, we would have never even started thinking about it. We would always say, yeah, it's too complicated. <coughs> We're never going to go there. Uh, and we would actually never move on. Um, GDPR is a problem also uh, at, at regional level in a way because we all know application is fragmented, so it is fragmented also within, uh, within countries. Um, to me, uh, I feel that you know, the, the health data space has the potential to take the next step to this. Uh, but, and maybe I think I saw also like a second question related to, uh, to, to what regions think about it, whether it's the right way to solve it, whether it's, uh, it's feasible enough. Um, I think at this stage, based on what we've seen uh, in the proposal per se, probably we cannot give like a definitive answer be, because like a lot of the implementation on the data space is still going to rely on uh, uh, implementing acts, delegated acts and so on. Um, but it has the right ambition to, uh, to help you know, all stakeholders, starting from local and regional uh, authorities, to, to, to deal with this. Um, although, yes, at this stage, um, it, is still, it is still an, an obstacle in a way. It's just something that still needs to be addressed. Um, but uh, at the same time, um, as an elephant in the room, we cannot go around it in a way. Um, and with, with the proposal of the Commission, with the work that the Commission has also been doing together with stakeholders and uh, um, uh, over, over the, 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 the long kind of period of, uh, of developing the data space, I think we are indeed going in the right direction. But Thank it's, gonna, you, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're identifying some problems that need to be solved. But, but Tessa, I wonder if you want to look at this from a, from a slightly different perspective. So. Yes, GDPR is possibly one of the problems, but is, is the, does the problem reside in, in legislation or is it elsewhere? Why is it that you said that um, you don't have access to your data in the way that you would like, and when you do get access to it, it's not even necessarily correct? So is the problem solvable with legislation or is the problem elsewhere? I think you've got a define what the problem is. And I'm sorry, I'm talking about the problem as I see it, um, less from the point of view of institutions sharing information um, across borders. I'm talking about or traveling to the moon. Patients have a very finite amount of time. And, 
They want to get good quality, safe care. And they are now interacting with fragmented providers where there is no continuity of care, where you turn up at an outpatient and somebody has a blank sheet and says, tell me about yourself. Um, now, when you've got you know, multi-morbid conditions and a very complex history, this is a pretty daunting prospect. Is this guy going to give you self-care? Do you trust the advice the management is going to give you? So, at you know, one level, the GDPR thing has certainly exercised the BMJ because we, have, uh, we send all our papers out for review by patients as well as peer reviewers, and we obviously we have confidential data on that. We've had to get permission, and that's exercised it. But sorry, I'd like to go back to the patient because I think it's a damn sight easier for, to give the patient access to their full electronic health records than it is probably to sort out the, you know, the stratosphere with all its many, many complexities because the patient is the one sort of the common link as, it, as they seek care from different providers, um, different specialists, if they cross borders. It, they need to be empowered with full access to that information. And it, the difference it makes to them is now well established. We've got 10 years worth of research looking at the benefits to patients of full access to their own health records. Most of this has been um, undertaken, collated by two outfits. One is in Sweden, and it's called the Dome Consortium. The second is in the US and it's called the Open Notes Initiative. If you go to those websites, you can look at the overwhelming evidence of the benefit to patients and the public to carry their own full health information. It's empowering. They learn about their conditions. It's raising their health literacy. We know that people with high literacy, health literacy, have better outcomes. They're better prepared for clinics when they come along to talk to the doctor. The communication is better. It increases their, tr their trust in their health professions. It increases their adherence to treatment, understanding of management plans. There makes so much difference. And it's also shown benefits to clinicians and to health systems too. So why wouldn't we go hell for leather to roll it out? Thank you very much. You've actually, and I didn't pose the question as it was posed on the Slido, but there was a question on the Slido which, should, which was, should data sharing and data privacy um, be discussed at a more general level. People need to understand what data privacy means and how data is gathered and processed. And I think you've just gone a long way to answering that question, Tessa. Thank you very much. Um, so I think we, we're, we're really moving along here. We're identifying some of the big challenges that need to be addressed. Um, and to that, I'd like to come back to you, Birgit. In terms of challenges that need to be addressed, you also showed some of the, in your first answer, you, you indicated some of the legislation that is now going to start impacting on us. And you actually indicated another elephant in the room, uh, which is artificial intelligence and the use of data in a way that for many people seems very frightening indeed. Um, however, in, in your domain, in cardiovascular healthcare, there is a, an increasing use of, of algorithms to help clinicians make decisions and increasingly to help patients make decisions about how they exercise, how they eat, uh, how their sleep is affecting them and so forth. Do you think this is another area that we need to tackle and address? 
Yeah, definitely. And coming a little bit back to the question, um, uh, um, law, uh, legal uh, requirements, this, this is not really, that is not, not the problem. What we need to have is a political and societal consensus of what we want. <laughs> Once we know what we want, uh, then we can put it into legal practice. So uh, laws are never never an obstacle. It's the, the political agreement. So this is my, my um, old conviction as a passionate <laughs> lawyer background, um, um, which we need to tackle on there. What Tessa I said uh, the, the, uh, a discussion uh, and, and, and let's say concepts need to be clarified. What do, what do we need? Uh, uh, there are different um, um, ter terms for, for the, for the um, patients already. Like, is it a data subject? Is it a data recipient? Is it a data user? So uh, uh, these legal concepts, um, they have to be clarified what we want. And then uh, um, but once we have the, the principles clear, the, the, the values clear, we understand what public interest is and what uh, innovation means, uh, have a proper definition, I think then we can um, uh, give it a legal form. But at the moment, we are, as, as I said, between a suitcase and, and, uh, and a rucksack, uh, between different instruments which have been there in the past and, and needing to go forward. Uh, that is what we need to have to get to this trust uh, of, of patients into the system. Uh, also to have the, um, as Tessa mentioned, health literacy, also as um, uh, making an investment so that everybody is on board and understands how he or she can use the data, and then we find the technology and the legal instruments. That is, uh, but I think the um, um, political and society uh, agreement, the consensus that have, has to be created first, and then we can can, uh, can put it into practice. Now that we already have some um, structures in place, we need to order order the, ruck, the rucksack. Um, and I think I tend to be rather for the rucksack because we need to be going. We can't wait uh, another centuries uh, um, before we have instruments in place to, to help uh, healthcare, giving all the pressing crisis we have left, right, and center. So we need to use to harvest um, um, the potential of digital tools without shedding the baby with the bathwater, uh, bath as, as the British say. Um, so this is there's a certain urgency, I think, and uh, and clarifying these concepts, um, the content of these concepts, uh, should be first to have have this understanding, this agreement at a multi-sectoral, multi-stakeholder um, uh, discussion, and then I think we are we are better prepared for our journey. Thank you very much, and and you, you've done one thing there that. You which you said that one of the problems with this question about the moonshot and these journeys is we haven't defined our destination. When we were preparing for this panel, we thought about another question and another thing that we haven't really defined is we talk about the patient. But in this journey that we're on, is it the same journey for all different types of patients? Um, is it at the moment, what we have with the cross-border care directive, it's primarily aimed at two types of patient. The relatively well patient who travels and has an accident, or the patient with a rare condition who needs the assistance of a specialist in another country using something like the European Reference Network for Rare Diseases. But there's a wealth of patients in between there. And one of the questions we have on Slido is what about a dementia patient who can't 
access their own data, may not want to access their own data, but wants to authorize another person to access their data. So Birgit suggested one of our problems is we haven't actually defined our destination, so a problem in getting there. What about the travelers on this journey? Would you like to make any comments about those different travelers? Tessa, would you like to go first on that one, the, the different types of travelers and how we meet their needs? Well, I'm sorry, I probably sound like a worn-out record, but I think you meet all of their needs if you're a um, fit and healthy person and, um, you know, you've got virtually no medical history and you need your leg setting. If you're um, the carer of somebody with dementia who has given you permission to um, access the full record and support them to get care. Um, if you're somebody with complex multimorbidity but you have access to this information I think the the common thing I think we all need the same thing we need what we were talking about decades ago which is this smart card which you can whichever provider you see whatever the problem is you can insert it in or you have it on your phone. I've got, there's a lovely anecdote. There's um, an amazing GP in the UK called Dr. Amir Hanan, who's been recognized by our late queen with a, um, an order of merit, because he's been giving people access to their full health, electronic health records for 16 years. And there's a lovely clip he shows of um, a lady during, the, during the, the pandemic who was admitted to hospital, a very complex history. There was absolutely um, no information about her history and the doctors, were, orthopedic surgeons were wondering if it was safe to operate and what she was on and they were all new and they were rushing around. There was so little time and it was all fraught as it always is in hospital. And she just calmed them down. She said, it's okay. I can answer all your questions. I've got all my information here on my handheld. Just go ahead, far ahead, and I'll answer that. And this good lady um, in her 80s got safe care. Now, this is what people want. <laughs> they, they want safe, good quality care. And as a patient, I've completely given up with thinking that providers are necessarily able to provide this when they don't, and very often they don't. In fact, always they don't have full access to my full health information. The GPs don't have it. The eight hospital specialists I occasionally see don't have it. Um, it. I feel it's my responsibility to have it and compile my own records, and that's exactly what I've done over years. And it's frankly been life-saving. Um, and I could enlarge on this, but um, uh, it's... You know, I've spotted errors in the medical record. We know these occur in one in five cases. I've spotted situations where doctors have simply not noticed an abnormal test result, which needs to be followed up and which needs treatment. I actually was able to aid diagnosis of two parallel concessions, um, conditions that I have, one being hyperparathyroidism and the other pernicious anemia, important conditions which cause unpleasant and horrible symptoms which were successfully treated but had been ignored, these symptoms, because everyone just said, well, you've got cancer, dear, and you're a bit depressed about your cancer. Now, 
you know, I'm an N of one. I can't believe, though, that the situation isn't similar for many, many patients. And I do think that we have to give <coughs> patients their right, which is access to their data, and empower them to self-manage and take a level of control. I mean, we know that with most patients, they're spending three hours, maybe max, with, um, in front of or with or interacting with a health professional. And it's something like 8,757 hours per year in self-management. And they do this with their patients, with, with, with family members, with friends, with, through patient networks. It's not as if healthcare doesn't stops and starts in your interaction with a health provider. I mean, it's rubbish to think that. So um, I think we have to take a lot more seriously this idea of um, fully accessible health records to patients and giving them the chance to um, self-manage and take more control and, you know, really participate in shared decision-making, which is so important. Yeah, I mean, I, I very much agree. And I think, you know, healthcare systems typically work in silos and data can smash through silos. I mean, Birgit and I have both worked in cardiovascular and, and oncology and we know that somebody coming with uh, heart problems, presenting with heart problems, may not mention that they've had cancer and vice versa. And actually that's extremely valuable information for the, the uh, GP or the family doctor or the specialist that is treating them. And if we're relying, as Tessa was saying, on the patient's memory and expertise about their own condition, we tie the healthcare professional's hand behind his back. We prevent them from doing their job because we're not giving them all of the information and we're relying on the patient who may be uh, very literate and articulate, who may not be. We're relying on the patient to provide all of that detail. And that's why what you're talking about, Tessa, and the, what, the, for example, the, the smart card thing that we have in, in France is so valuable because all you have to do is show up with your card and then all your stuff is there. But there's another issue as well, which is that the healthcare professional wants to know how to treat that patient in the best possible way and we tie their second arm behind their back because we don't give them anonymized, a data to, uh, uh, anonymized data access to similar patients of a similar age and gender with a similar condition. So we, even in their own country, even in, never mind cross borders. So we are really putting the healthcare professional in a difficult spot on two levels. The, and, and, and I think that um, this is what the opportunity of the health data space has across Europe. Um, it's about empowering patients. It's about empowering healthcare professionals. And it's about empowering healthcare systems to achieve much better results just by breaking down silos. Thank you very much. So the silos your big barrier that we need to address regardless of what type of patient it's for. What about regional silos, regional barriers, Michele? 
Well, I think I actually wanted to, to, to follow up on the dimension on healthcare professionals because mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, uh, that's a very important point. Again, uh, yesterday in, in the session, we were um, uh, Natasha Zopardi from WHO <coughs> was talking about how digitalization should support professionals in, uh, in, 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 in improving the way that they do their job, basically, and actually not eventually create um, further problems or tying their hands behind their back, indeed. Um, and this, I think, goes through also uh, the, the importance, maybe that can be considered a barrier, so uh, the importance of improving education and, and literacy and skills development for patients, but also for healthcare professionals. Because I think, indeed, uh, um, we've, been, we've been talking about silos, we've been talking about collaboration between different stakeholders. I think this has all to be part of the same ecosystem, whether it's at national level, whether it's at regional uh, and, and local level. Uh, in some cases, it could be easier. In some cases, it will be a little bit harder. But I think um, going beyond what's written in the regulation on the European Hand Data Space, I think what needs to be fundamental is that we also look at the whole ecosystem preparedness to welcome what's going to be the, the, the end game of the regulation, basically. So uh, once we're going to have the European Hand Data Space, whether it's in 5, 10, 15 years, uh, how are local, regional, national uh, actors are going to be able to welcome what's going to be written there. Are they going to be able to, to, to be prepared both from the infrastructural point of view but also from the ecosystem point of view? And that's actually something that we, we started to look together with, uh, uh, with, with our authorities because we realized how really looking at the different components of the healthcare ecosystem um, it's, it's fundamental, because otherwise we risk to leave someone behind. Whether these are patients, whether these are uh, specific uh, um, type of patients, whether it is a uh, uh, you know, specific disease patient, of course we, have, we know that we have like, different typology of patients that are maybe more uh, into using already data, into using digitalization than other pathologies. Uh, we have, as, as, as Mike was saying, um, different types of engagement with digital uh, and data. And that's, I think, uh, we also need to keep it in mind that it might not be solved to increase in literacy. I think there will be a point where um, carers or patients themselves are maybe not going to be able to make the best use of whether it's an app or whether it's a card. So I think it's going to be also important to look at this and make sure that we're not leaving them behind. And that's, I think, it's, it's fundamental. And the same reasoning should be done also with, uh, with healthcare professionals as well. Because, uh, again, otherwise, even with a big European initiative, we still risk to be bound to how the individual professional or the, um, or the individual patient is going to interact with, uh, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with the data, basically, uh, with the data space. And with the data on the app, on the phones, or whether it's on, on a card. Thank you very much. Birgit, would you like to come in on this? Um either reacting to what the other speakers have said or on the original question around what about different type of patients? You said we need to define the journey. Do we need to define the travellers as well? Sorry, you said we need to define the destination. Do we need to define the travellers as well? 
Uh, well, uh, first, maybe to the question, uh, I think uh, Define the Traveler, they are all, we are all of them, we are all travelers. So what we need to do is to have, uh, to enable everybody to be on the same footing, leaving nobody behind. That means uh, uh, creating the structures uh, already um, at, a, let's say at, at a governance uh, model so that uh, it is easy to access, that it is that people can access, that they have, they know uh, uh, who has ha had access um, and uh, that there's a, 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 a European format so that um, uh, e-prescription images and uh, reports, they, they all pass in, in a way. And uh, I think it's very important that um, we enable the access of, of people. Uh, it's the literacy question. Is that if, if there are people with dementia, I think we, uh, that we need to uh, enable their surrounding uh, to, be, uh, to, to make it possible. We have to have an um, infrastructure which is payable uh, uh, for, for everybody. Uh, and I think we, it, it needs the structure itself must be as easy as uh, as our children are moving on iPads on, on their phones, uh, changing the settings. It must it must get as intuitive uh, for everybody as possible. I think there we have um, uh, the technology needs to come in to, to, to make it to make it easy for everyone. And if it's uh, providing um, public structures, uh, good good Wi-Fi, fiber cable, whatever it is, uh, uh, to make um, everybody uh, have access to uh, his health data and be able to share it as Tessa has mentioned with wherever he or she moves in the healthcare system so for me actually there are not different travelers we need we everybody needs to have access to be part of this joint system so everyone can use it um, whatever his role at the current at the um, given moment is being a healthcare provider being a carer being a patient so that the the system can be used efficiently and that is I think uh, also a public task that uh, um, member states come together, regions, uh, uh, um, com commu um, communes, uh, uh, they make it possible that the infrastructures are there with a good um, governance. We are talking about registries. We having um, we, we need to have um, um, uh, the, 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 the highways, or if you say the, 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 the space rockets, uh, um, Departure panels, etc. So I think we, we need to, need to work on these these structures uh, that they work, that there are authorities there, that there's a checks and balances within the system. So it's a, it's a huge public task uh, as well, I think. But uh, in the center should be the the patient, the person using it, and it's a, the the great aspect of co-creation, which has also been mentioned by Tessa, in order to make the system function. We can't have a system just being theoretically constructed. We see where it then bucks with with the definitions which are not coherent between legal instruments. We need to have the technology in place. So I think it's it's a it's a big um, societal challenge which we all need to work on. And I think it needs to be co-created with the patient. Otherwise, it will not work in the end. And we don't have good health outcomes, which is the whole purpose of it. Thank you very much. And in answering that, and in fact, the other panels in answering that question as well, you've, you're pointing towards one of the other questions on Slido. And I'm very aware of that, that I'm seeing the Slido questions and you aren't. So you're obviously mind readers because you're answering the question a little bit. But one of the questions on the Slido was, uh, I'm surprised the very limited discussion about the training of appropriate human resources and skills. Are there any plans to address this? Because we've been talking about the patients and, and the patients as the vectors and consumers of health data. 
But actually, we need, and Tess, you've made that very clear as well, the intermediary of the, of the healthcare professional and the whole range of healthcare professionals to do that. We also need, there is another professional who is seriously missing in, in this space, which is the data scientists. Data as itself, as it stands on its own, is of very little value. Um, and one of the big issues that I think we perhaps need to address with the European health data space is access to mountains, lakes of, mountains and lakes in this region, of um, um, raw health data isn't going to advance anything. It needs to be curated, it needs to be managed, it needs to be turned into something useful, and that requires data scientists. Do you think that this is actually opening the issue to another whole silo that we need to address. The European health data space is not going to sit on its own. It needs data scientists that come from outside the, the healthcare world, but it perhaps also really needs other data. One of the other sessions here yesterday was looking at the importance of climate data and healthcare. There's also sessions looking at, at food and healthcare. This is all data that comes from outside the healthcare world. In your experience, how good are we at bringing in both the other players, like data scientists, and the other types of data, like climate data or environmental data or food intake data? And Mike, I see you're picking up. Well, I mean, I think, I think, it's, I think it's right. I think that there's a data scientists, you know, obviously crucial in, in this. And I, I think, you know, I was chairing a session just now and we were talking about inequalities and somebody raised the question of housing data and where people live and what kind of housing they live in what data do, you know what does that tell us about their access to to uh, quality cancer care in in that case so i think there's there's a lot there i think that's one of the biggest challenges right because you've got not just the patient who i think needs to be at the center of this and the healthcare professional You've got the member states, because the member states and the regions have to uh, buy into having systems that talk to each other, having some level of standardization of the data that's uh, recorded, having some ability for systems to talk to each other to resolve GDPR issues. So you've got the patients, you've got the healthcare professionals, you've got the member states. You've probably also got data scientists, academia generally, about finding what are the ways of solving all of this thing about systems talking to each other. I think you've got the healthcare industry as well, because without the healthcare industry's buy-in to all of this happening, it will not happen. There's a lot of innovation there in the healthcare industry. So you're talking about the management of a large group of stakeholders, which becomes a challenge. We know that in big European initiatives, getting all of those stakeholders around one table, getting them all to buy in at the same time, rather than it drifting off into a regulation that's theoretical, which is the risk, we need to keep it real. We need to keep it real. And I think by putting patients, healthcare professionals at the heart of it, the other, the other groups, the member states, academia, data scientists, and industry can, can really support that effort. Um, and it needs to be in the context of improving both cross-border data sharing, but also improving healthcare, individual healthcare systems uh, 
as a result of aiming, aiming for the moon. Tessa, you're nodding. Would you like to build on that? No, I just, just want to um, re-emphasise your point. And Burgess, I think that we have to do this together. You know, co-design and co-creation of new data systems, you know, is, is absolutely essential. Um, and, you know, where it's done, there's a lovely a portal used in Montreal um, where they, um, they got everyone together, the, the data analysts, the, all the, the different software vendors, whatever, all the, the techie people, the healthcare professionals, the patients. And, you know, they were able to make a successful portal. Whereas in some situations, patients can access health information, their health information or access their records, and um, I hear this from the States, but actually what you get is a terrible jumble of sort of bills here and letters from insurance companies, you know, and a bit of your clinical data there. And I mean, unless you have the sort of this designed in some sort of interface that you can really access and use, it's, it's, it's not going to be half as helpful as it should be. So I think co-creation is essential, and that should include those people who are going to find it difficult to use digital solutions, um, you know, not just the educated, you know, middle class. But one way, I think, quite imaginative way, I'd just like to mention, because you may not have heard of it, I hadn't heard of it until recently, is in Australia, um, where they've, they've got my health record, and they realise there are many communities, like um, some of the refugees or some of the very older patients and um, communities that are very tentative and they don't use their electronic health records because they don't know how to do it. So what they've done is they've gone to um, a community foundation, a charitable outfit called the Good Things Foundation and got them to work with different voluntary and community um, uh, different organisations, given them a little bit of seed money and they're training digital health mentors and they go into these, um, you know, and work with these um, communities of people who are digitally excluded and show them a way to actually participate in the new world of electronic health records and full transparency. So I think, you know, we can look, imagine, and, and they've evaluated the impact of this um, system, which has been running for a couple of years. It's been really most encouraging. So I do think, you know, the things that can be done to, to reach those who, who are excluded, and, and the experience of, certainly from some of the patients knows best system in the UK, is that you know, parents of, say, disabled children or, um, you know, so much value, the ability to see all that information and be the surrogate and support as a unit that that person who can't, isn't digitally literate themselves to actually um, get good health care and sort of interact with health professionals as constructively as possible in the short time of, that, that you spend with them. But I think... Uh, just one other thing, sorry, about, about sharing data, sharing data, sharing data, as if the answer is all in the science and that um, the very best data will allow you to give that patient the very best treatment. Well, it only will if it aligns with their priorities and preferences. You know, we, we, cookbook medicine does not um, do everybody a favour. 
Um, so there's a whole new dimension there and a whole new amount of data, soft data, around patients' preferences, priorities, if you like, patients' experience data, which is just as valuable as their hemoglobin level or their scan result, which is essential to giving them the right sort of care for them. Just one more thing to add, Petra. I want to because I, I saw Francesco's uh, comment in the in the chat there, and very much agree with it. I think, um, you know, we should see the European Health Data Space debate as an opportunity. As an opportunity, will it be? Will it roll out perfectly? No. But is it an opportunity of a generation? Yes. It's an opportunity, as Francesco is suggesting there, to deal with the GDPR issue. It's an opportunity which will not come around again in our generation with this level of intervention in healthcare and the whole national competence issue and on the back of COVID and the vaccination program. We need to use this opportunity to level up, to improve healthcare systems and raise all of the issues that we're raising. Let it's okay to aim for the moon. Will it be perfection? No, I don't think so. But if, if we let this bus go by, mm -hmm. pass by, because it's not perfect to get on, we will be failing in our responsibility. We'll be failing in our responsibility to patients and citizens all, all across Europe. And so I think it's a question of using the European health data space as a hook in policy terms to make all of the arguments that Birgit and Tess and Michaela have been, have been uh, raising today. So let's, uh, let me just point you towards another question on the Slido, and then please, please do answer Michaela. But I think we've been focusing a lot on what in EHDS terms is known as EHDS1, so using data to provide care to patients. <clears throat> the question on, on the Slido is what about secondary use of data? And the question yeah. there is, um, is it, is it, should, should patients and, or citizens have more control over how their data is used for secondary purposes? But I would actually like to make that question bigger to you. Um, what, what about the uh, value of the European health data space in opening data for secondary use, for innovation, to drive the change to get us to the moon? Um, Michele, do you want to go first and then Birgit, if you want to follow on? Yeah, I'll be... Uh, I'll be very quick and I also want to, to follow up on Francesco's question. I think that's a very good point. And uh, there is a concrete risk uh, if we look at how we are recovering from COVID-19. And, and let me explain why. Um, with the recovery resilience facility, of course, there's a lot of money that is also going for directly on uh, digitalization and innovation uh, at, at national level, at regional level in some cases. But basically, um, you know, we will need to deliver results while we're actually still discussing where we're going with the European health data space. Mm -hmm. If we want to look at it as a roadmap, as kind of our indication, uh, as a vision on how to, to basically work on health data at European level. So I think uh, we will just need to be extremely careful on how we look on what's happening on Earth right now, which is delivering immediate results to improve, uh, uh, to, to use innovation where needed in our healthcare system, and that can be done already today, basically, at different levels. And 
link it very, very well with what's going to be the future vision that the European health data space can bring beyond the fact that it's going to be a potentially revolutionary uh, regulation. As Mike was saying, it's, it's something that we cannot uh, just leave there and say, okay, we're going to deal with it uh, afterwards. No, we need to really now everybody that is working on innovation, everybody is working on digitalization of healthcare system, I think we really need to keep in mind that that's going to end up in a single vision that this data space hopefully uh, will deliver at some point. So I think that's something that I just wanted to bring because it's, it's, it's a very good point. So how we, we look for the future, but actually how we manage to actually innovate uh, right now. I think it has to be, it has to be balanced, it has to be kept in mind. Um, on, uh, on, on, on secondary use, uh, um, well, I think, yes, I do have the very much uh, strong hope that, uh, uh, that the data space, uh, the health data space, indeed, as if you look at it as a vision, will also support uh, how we can make better use of, uh, of uh, uh, well, secondary data for research innovation and for policy-making purpose. I think that's, uh, uh, that's going to be essential. Um, in terms of uh, uh, and in terms of access and control, I think that still needs to be uh, very much there. But at the same time, uh, we need to find system to make it happen in a way that uh, um, it's, it's, it applies to, to everybody. I mean, we've been talking about different type of stakeholders that are involved. We've been talking about even a different type of, of patients that, uh, uh, that will engage with health data. So we want to kind of create a system that ultimately, also for the secondary use, will create an amount of data that it's also uh, that has also quality enough to be used for, for everybody. And it goes also to the use of data for artificial intelligence and so on. So I think, um, yeah, hopefully it will be primary and secondary use at the same time um, and, and will really drive forward also this, this, this level for health data. Thank you very much. Birgit, I know you're keen to jump back in. <laughs> No, uh, you, you sparked with the secondary use. So we've discussed uh, at the session very much the primary use, and that is perfectly appropriate because we need this uh, quality assured, but also privacy secured system where the patient can access the data, uh, can use it uh, on his patient journey. So this is very central, and this, this helps helps the. Uh, healthcare system definitely in the in the treatment and care. But uh, the secondary um, uh, use of data, that means using the existing health data for, for further purpose, for research, for innovation, it's just equally as uh, important. We've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic how little do we know. And I heard a professor from Stanford and Jerusalem just saying, we know 1% of the human biology, just 1% we know. So 99% is unknown to it. And there, I think data can be help to push um, um, to push uh, innovation and research uh, to help us get better to better treatments if we manage to uh, have uh, quality quality assured national registries and have um, um, uh, um, that lead to an um, improvement at hospital and country level. So I think th these are, are very important. And it also will help us to speed up the research because we saw how important it was to have uh, vaccines uh, available and which when, when we didn't have them for COVID. And I think the, the, there's also the, um, the, the need to increase the speed and efficiency of randomized controlled trials, which are the bread and butter of, of research nowadays, which, but, which was just still very difficult to conduct and very expensive. 
and in the end, it takes years and years while, while patients uh, um, are suffering and, and dying from conditions. So I think uh, the secondary uh, use of data is just um, also very important to, to tackle in order to, to um, improve our healthcare systems and to have a, um, a better health outlook. And I'm quite proud um, about my uh, my um, British member, the British uh, Heart Foundation, they invested in, into a data, um, data science centre. So they link up um, between uh, Health Data Research UK, uh, so uh, having the registry, and uh, they use it for um, improving uh, research on cardiovascular health. So that is a very nice, a sneak example where it does work, where we bring science to, towards the patient because the patient is sitting right in the structures of the data science center. So they have a governance structures where board meetings and uh, committee meetings are mandatory to have a patient in place to advise and to, to, um, to give input on, on, on how the uh, data should be used and how it should be managed and how, uh, what kind of research is, is, is needed to uh, ensure um, better health uh, patient outcomes in order to improve quality of life in the end. So I think um, it is, um, we have a unique chance with the European health data space to tackle primary use, so the use for the patient in the healthcare system, but also to push forward a scientific uh, advancement and progress in order to, to come back to the patient, to come back to society overall. And it, it's very much me needed as we saw uh, with the, in, the, in, in, in the pandemic, where we saw how little we knew, know and how little uh, our healthcare systems are resilient to tackle it. So I think it is a very inspiring uh, chapter, secondary use of, uh, of data as well. Thank you very much. Mike, you're itching yeah. to say something. No, I, I very much agree with Birgit, and I think the secondary use question needs to be resolved as quickly as possible in terms of getting some consistency around. Because what we're talking about here is getting some consistency around between member states' approach on it and then rolling it out. I mean, if you saw... Uh, Birgit mentioned COVID there, right? All sorts of things happened with telemedicine during the COVID. The one thing that's great about healthcare systems, as was proven in COVID, was their resilience and ability to innovate to help patients, right? That's what they did, that's what they do. They dealt with COVID in the best possible way and they came up with different approaches on telemedicine to be able to cope with the circumstances they found them. Now, we're behind the curve here, pan-European, because we don't have principles behind all of this. We need principles behind all of this so that there's some consistency we can for sharing later if we leave this if we let if we let this pass this moment then it'll be much harder to at a later stage to bring it back and have some consistency between the different healthcare systems so we're already behind but we can if we if we do this now it'll be well worth it i think thank you tessa i just wanted to jump in very quickly to say that Absolutely, use of secondary data, absolutely essential. But to emphasise that the patient community, OK, they're passionate about their own care and the care of their loved ones. They are equally passionate, especially extraordinary when things don't go right. 
to help other patients. They want learning um, to spread. They don't want the mistake and the problems that happened here to happen again and again and again, and sadly they do in another hospital, in another setting, in another country. I mean, there's an initiative called Use My Data um, in, in, the, in the UK. Um, you know, and there's a lot of force and power behind it. People really do want to um, share their data, share their information, um, share their experience to help others so there's um, but I think that they're also keen to work in in a gender setting too um, and it's interesting to me the power of these patient networks now I mean we heard a bit about that didn't we from the long COVID session there are a lot of people that are driving innovation and change is when you get a patient advocacy group which, which have sort of got together with the passion that you get when you have and live with a condition or your loved one lives with that, you know, to, to drive change, to drive improvement. And I don't think we should ignore these um, patient networks. I mean, just very quickly, you know, because I live with a rare disease, the standard um, consultation I have, oh, never met anybody with adrenal cancer before, and I just say, can I help? I'm a member of an international Facebook community. We're well over a 1,000, and we're exchanging daily information about new research trials, how to tolerate very difficult chemotherapy regimens, um, what the agenda should be for the next tranche of research, where the centers of excellence are, etc. You know, I think that we have to realize that patients are digitally co connected in a way that just transformed over the last decade or so. That didn't exist 15 years, 10, 15 years ago. And so working with them and harnessing some of the passion that they have will help us innovate and push forward this secondary data space, I'm sure. Thank, thank you very much. Um, we've got about 10 minutes left in this session, and what I want to do now is ask another question on Slido and use that to take us into the concluding part of this session. So the question that I want to ask is, is simply that we want to create um, a word cloud, and we want you to put into that word cloud um, the two words that of what you, or possibly more, but what do you most want the European health data space to achieve for you, whether that's as a patient, as a healthcare professional, as a data scientist, or of all three of those rolled into one, um, what is it that you want it to achieve in 10 years from now? And, and I'm seeing that 10 years from now as being a significant part towards our journey to the moon. Um, and I'd like to do that now, and then I'm going to ask the panelists to come <coughs> back to that. So if we could start working on the, on the word cloud, please, that would be great. Just to, to get that feeling of what it is that people want. Um, because I'm beginning to, what we want to do with this as well, just so that you know, we will be writing a report that comes out of this session, just to highlight some of the things that we've come together on and that we've um, that we've been able to identify because now is the time in the lifetime of this piece of legislation to put our feelings to the members of parliament, the people who we elect, who our taxes pay for, to make sure that this piece of legislation and the other legislation related to it, the Data Governance Act, the Data Act, any reforms of the GDPR, the Network Information Security Act, the Cyber Resilience Act, Europe has been busy. Um, 
and we want to make it work. So the words that we're coming out with here are patient empowerment, loud and clear in the middle, accessibility, interoperability, trust, transparency, accountability, uh, individual data ownership. Well, it seems that I didn't quite manage to get my message across about ownership not being the way forward. I hope that that can be ownership more in that emotional sense rather than, than in that um, sense of a title that we can pass on to somebody else. But there's lots of interesting things coming up here. And um, I'd like to close this in a moment. I'd just like to, yeah, if we give it another 30 seconds just to see what comes out as the, the most important words. I think we can see things coming out there quite strongly. And then I'd like to invite our panelists to give their give some thought to these words and on the basis of these words what is the advice and it also comes back to one of the other questions in Slido what is the advice that you would like to give to the policy makers the, the co-legislators who are now building the environment for us building it for us at European level but it's going to be executed at regional and local level so if we close the, the Slido now patient empowerment, accessibility, trust, interoperability. Those seem to be the four big words. Who's, who's ready to go? Who'd like to go first? Michele, I can, I you're can ready to go. I can give it a go. Oh, ready, we'll see. But, um, no, I mean, the words are, are, are pretty much, I don't know if you can have them up, but um, yeah, patient empowerment uh, and trust, I think they go very much together. Because uh, uh, after all, whether it's at European, national, regional, local level, hospital level, doesn't matter. But uh, this is going to be fueled by <coughs> individuals that are willing, uh, enable, um, literate enough, and 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 can really engage with the health data uh, movement, if you want to call it, um, in uh, beyond. You know the, the 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 individual examples that, for instance. Uh, Tessa mentioned. So I would really like that, you know, uh, the, the, the international Facebook community, the individual initiative would really, we would get to a point in, I don't know, 10 years from now, where every single uh, patient, every single care can feel as a full part of the health data movement and be safe with it. So feel free, safe to engage, feel they have the right tools to do it, tools that are developed with them and tools that are accessible, they can trust in. And uh, well, of course, they're also transparent. Uh, that's very important. Um, going to the second bit of, uh, of the question, what's my suggestion to policymakers? Um, you, you kind of mentioned it already. I think we need to keep the European ambition, uh, the, the, the European health data space should be a goal as a, uh, as, a, as a piece of law, but should also be a vision that we need to keep as, a, as part of the European Health Union process, actually. We need to make sure that that happens, but at the same time, while keeping this vision up and while keeping it happen, it's in, we cannot forget that indeed, as you said, it's gonna happen also at regional and local level. So keep the eyes on the moon, but really look at what's happening uh, on the ground in a way. Thank you very much. So we're going to be looking in two directions at all times. Mike. Petra, I th I th we talked earlier about smashing silos and that data can help healthcare professionals break through silos in the way they treat patients. I think 
we need to be inclusive and empower each other so that we don't work in silos <coughs> on this issue. And when I say we, I, I mean policymakers should not be over here, patients over there, healthcare professionals over here, member states and regions over here. That will be a recipe for a theoretical solution that will not work in practice. This needs to be practical, pragmatic. The experience on the ground of healthcare professionals and patients is obviously excuse me, extremely important. But we also need to knock heads together, to speak to truth to power, if you will. Systems that talk to each other. Let's just agree on some basic principles of what we're trying to achieve. And it, it can be done, but only if we smash the silos. Thank you very much. Tessa. Thank you. Um, patient empowerment. This is so crucial. First of all, it's a legal right to have access to your full information. So my message to policymakers is, please remember this. Um, and giving patients and the public full access to their own health information brings huge advantages. This has been shown by research consistently um, over the last 10 years. Um, improves outcomes, improves literacy, um, and enables people to self-manage conditions. And, you know, healthcare is not sustainable unless we get and help promote and support self-care. Um, and this has got a long way to go. We haven't even talked about interoperability is essential, but so is interaction. The whole point about digital um, records is that is we can have digital exchange. Now, there's plenty of examples where this has been done imaginatively so that the doctors and the patients, the patients being allowed to initiate when they're seen on the basis of what's happening to them and they interact and say, I don't need to be seen in three months. You gave me a three-month follow-up appointment, but I'm fine. Or actually, I need to be seen next week because things are going pear-shaped. I've been monitoring my own blood glucose or whatever it is, and clearly, and I've adjusted this and I've done this, but I need some more support and help. Um, in several conditions, like rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease, they have shown that patients are empowered by access to information and they can use that to interact and with their health providers and show how they're getting on and make their own decisions about when they need to be seen. They need to be seen less often. They end up in A&E less often. This is a move that could really save money. And when it comes to things like digital consent, that looks like the way forward. Consent for procedures is done really badly. And now we're starting to look at digital consent, where all the full breakdown of the risks, benefits of doing a particular procedure are presented to the patient in advance, not in two minutes, before they get wheeled down to the operating theatre, which I've had done to me. Um, and, you know, that will really improve shared decision-making. And the more information patients know about the risks of procedures and the side effects and the complications, along with the benefits, funnily enough, the less they choose interventions. Um, and again, you know, we know that we live in an era of too much medicine. Um, and proper shared decision-making, which could be facilitated by this exchange, which also takes account knowledge of patients' preferences, um, could actually help reduce some of the costs to health systems. Um, it's a crucial move, and I hope that within the, all that's going on at European level, this element um, will be taken seriously and pushed for. Um, 
I believe it will be. But Birgit, I'm going to ask you to be very brief in your last comments so that I can do a little bit of summing up and then we'll let people have lunch wherever they may be, online or here. Very good. I'm, I'm a concise speaker, as you know. So I have five words dotted down. It's people. So we need to, uh, we start with the patient. We, 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 it's, it's, he's, he, she is in the center. We can only do it together. Uh, we need uh, principles. That means uh, um, uh, governance systems. We need values. We need to discuss what is uh, uh, public interest. Uh, and um, we need to be clear about the safe and ethical use uh, and reuse of data. Then we need the structures. We need all the organizational. We need agencies. We need uh, registries. We need them in place in order to function. We can't have just the ideas, the dreaming. We need to have physical investments. We need, we need the elements, the rule. Um, um, the wheels of the machine as well. And then uh, I think um, very much science-driven, we need evidence base. We need all to take all our, all our decisions forward uh, um, to enable science and to help us being, being a better society based on evidence. And last but not least, definitely not least, equity. We, we want to reduce health inequalities and uh, inequities in the societies. And we should use all these five points, people, principles, structures, evidence-based equity, to transform. That's the topic here of Gastein, to transform our healthcare systems uh, with digital tools in order to become a better healthcare system for all. I hope that's fine. With you, Petra, it, I stop you. It is indeed fine. And in fact, you've probably done my job for me by summing it up. So I'm going to just try and give us a little, very quick summing up on, on where we've gone on the journey of these last 90 minutes. The question at the beginning was, are we on the way to the moon yet? The answer there was from about 60%. We are still day daydreaming, and from about 30%, we've started planning, and then it started to tail off. I think we identified some of the problems about why we're still daydreaming. One of those first problems is we haven't really defined our destination, and we need to do that collaboratively, and we need to work out what the destinations many are and what the destinations are for the different types of travellers who are going to be on this journey. And those travellers are not just the patients, but all the people around them, including people who may be in a much wider circle, like data scientists, like the healthcare industry, in, in its bigger sense. But it isn't just about knowing where we want to go and to continue the traveling image, to know who the travelers are and to make sure that they have the right baggage packed, so the right data. It needs a journey, a, a, a traveling needs rules of the road. The EHDS is going to be an important part of that, but we have to get it right. And there are two big things that I think have come out of this that we need to get it right. And, and Birgit iterated it in a slightly different way. But I would say that the, the primary ingredient we need to get it right is co-creation and mediators to build that co-creation. And with that, I would like to put a slight nuance on the... The, the drive to patient empowerment. Yes, patients need be empowered, to be empowered. Patients have to be empowered, but not in a way that is burdensome. And if a patient needs a mediator or a support, be that somebody who is an informal carer for them or somebody who is a paid mediator and a supporter, we need to build that into the system. Because at the moment, we co-create with the willing and able for the willing and able and not for everyone. And if we do that, we possibly end up where we've been with the GDPR, that it was a great idea, but it was already not fit for purpose when it hit the statute books. We have the right to do it. We have the 
we have the means to do it right and the duty to do it right with the European health data space. That means that we all, as citizens of Europe, and I apologize for those who are not citizens of Europe, but those of our, us who are citizens of Europe, we have the capacity to lobby our members of parliament to make sure that they hear our voices so that they can co-create for us. But it doesn't stop there because the legislation is just the beginning. Then it has to be implemented. And that comes down to the nitty gritty at the regional level. And that's where the empowerment of the patient, mediated if necessary, comes back into play. So I hope with that we've inspired you that the HDS is going to be a good thing, that you are needed to intervene to make it a good thing, and that it's all going to be good fuel to that journey into better healthcare so that when Gastein's 50th anniversary comes along, we are not talking only about what's going to happen in the future, but we're going to be able to look back on what we did well 25 years ago. Thank you very much.